King Radio Network at JournalKing.com. Welcome to the Paranormal News Insider for the week of August 10th, 2021, and episode number 487. And this is your host, Dr. Brian D. Parsons, and we are live on the Paranormal King radio network at ParanormalKing.com. And of course, the home of the Paranormal News Insider is ParanewsInsider.com. And... Tonight, we've got uh, news, as always, from all over the place, and I'm going to kind of go off um, off my normal pattern for for some reason. I just, I just want to kind of go backwards tonight. Uh, I do have uh, kind of a meaning for that. Hopefully, it, uh, it all paints itself into a nice little picture as I get towards the end. Uh, if I have time, hopefully I have time at the end. There's seems like... Uh, I didn't think I was going to have a whole lot of great stuff, uh, but it turned out a lot of a lot of stories pouring in, a lot of stuff that I wanted to talk about. Uh, and I've been trying to get a chance to talk about some uh, listener email that I've gotten over the course of the last few weeks. Just kind of answer some stuff because I figure if I get a couple of emails from people asking me some questions that maybe there are other people out there as well that want to hear uh, some of these uh insights into uh, paranormal research and investigation as well so hopefully i'll get to that and so tonight i'm gonna i'm gonna go bottom up here Uh, i'm gonna actually start out all the way at the bottom of my notes Uh, so the segments will be flip-flopped because i really actually i really really want to talk about the story i'm very excited uh there's a big event coming up Uh, i knew 20 21 was going to be exciting with the uh, the Mars stuff, although that's been kind of a little bit of a, I don't want to say disaster, but hasn't really been as, as exciting as I'd hoped. But uh, seeing some activity up there on Mars uh, was also really excited. This is the year, I hope. And here's the, the first story. Uh, I didn't expect to uh, be talking about this particular thing probably until September or October, uh, but very excited to see an article in the New Yorker talking about a new telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope. I've been excited about this. I've talked about this on the show. Maybe I'll mention it maybe once a year, if that, maybe once every other year, it seems like only when things kind of fall behind. Uh, but it seems like it's all finally gotten put together. Billions of dollars. And uh, decades later, we might see this thing launch. And it's going to, uh, you're going to hear a lot about this space telescope uh, if everything goes correctly. In the near future, it's uh, going to change what we know about a lot of things. And, you know, that's one of the things about this show I like to talk about. Things are going to eventually change our ways of thinking, change how we view the world around us and, and really and truly the universe. 
around us as well. We may even change the way we think about life in general, let alone life in outer space. So, uh, so for years, and some of you guys might be old enough to remember uh, when the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, and there was uh, quite a few problems with getting that to work correctly. There was, uh, I mean, this is back in the space shuttle era here in the United States, and we had to launch uh, different things to correct things. It was like a blurry out of focus. Uh, so they had to do some patchwork to get the Hubble t Space Telescope to work correctly. And pretty much it's gone on to be the uh, the best telescope in space. It's uh, the best telescope we have that's not attached to this large rock known as Earth. And it's uh, provided us great detail in space uh, since its launch in 1990. Of course, after it was uh, repaired a number of times and, and finally got it working correctly. 1990. That's a long time to wait for a new space telescope, but that's where we're at. And, if, you know, of course, the Hubble telescope had its fair share of issues. Uh, it's done its uh, job very well, though. It's uh, constantly getting new data, new pictures. And just, uh, I think, was that a few years ago, they had the pretty much the, you could see the oldest stars uh, ever photographed. And uh, that's going to change pretty soon. Um, so as I mentioned, the new telescope, the James Webb Space Telescope, uh, that actually, even though it's launching hopefully this year, everything looks like it's finally uh, finally put together correctly and no problems, nothing's broken. Uh, all the tests have finally passed on this. Um, it actually started being developed way back in 1989. So even before the Hubble Space Telescope was launched, they started working on the next best thing. And uh, it's been constantly revised and updated, redesigned over the years to uh, what it is today. Uh, in 2002, it was uh, finally officially named the James Webb Space Telescope. And that's after the administrator of NASA from 1961 to 1968, who played a key role in the Apollo program, which, of course, uh, pretty much put us on the map for space travel. Got a lot of people excited about it. Got a lot of uh, kids interested in space and science. And that's something that we really sorely need. So uh, whether or not the James Webb Space Telescope is going to influence kids to want to be uh, astronomers or uh, scientists We'll have to see, but I think the work is going to speak for itself in the near future. Uh, in 1997, way back in 1997, uh, it was estimated that the telescope would be launched in 2007. That was a long time ago. Uh, that planned launch date, well, that changed. Uh, about a dozen times it's been pushed back three times in the last three years. And yeah, it's uh, accumulated a total cost nearing $10 billion. $10 billion with a B. Um, but the good news is uh, the cost has been um, 
kind of layered out. It's not just the it's not just the United States paying for it. A lot of other countries have pitched in because they're uh, they want to get the work from it as well. So there's 20 countries that have collaborated on the project, either funding it or designing things uh, for it. So it's a pretty much a worldwide collaboration. Yeah, I mean, pretty much it's United States and parts of Europe, uh, a little bit of Asian influence there as well. But uh, the launch, which I'm so excited for. I'm, I'm hoping everything goes okay. Uh, this could get really, I mean, can you imagine if something happened to this rocket? $10 billion, 30 years in the making, comes crashing down. Uh, that would not be good. And uh, there for a while, it looked like the launch was actually going to happen on Halloween. I was excited about that, but now it's uh, been pushed into November. They don't have a, a specific date as of yet from what I've read, uh, but it's probably going to be early November. And even though everything, uh, like I said, all the most of the hurdles have been crossed, uh, things have been checked off. And uh, it's passed all the tests. There's still a few things that can go wrong. It's still sitting in Los Angeles, and it has to make its way uh, for quite the journey. So it's a seven-ton telescope. Uh, it's got uh, pieces and parts on this thing. The uh, uh, When it unfurls, I think it's the size of a house. This uh, sail is actually thinner than a piece of paper. So that, you know, that's a little worrisome if something were to happen. Uh, it's actually going to be loaded on a ship in Los Angeles, and it's going to sail south and go through the Panama Canal. It will then head to uh, French Guiana near Brazil. Um, and some may ask or may, may wonder, well, why don't they just fly the thing there? We got these newfangled things called jets and airplanes. Uh, granted, you know, again, you're adding a little bit of potential, you know, impact to it, but there's ways around that. But the, the real problem with it not flying is that in Brazil, or I should say in French Guiana, the airport, uh, closest to the, the, uh, the launch pad area, which is near the ocean, uh, the bridges that are between that area, the airport, I think there's seven bridges in total. Uh, they're not designed to hold seven tons plus a truck hauling this thing. Uh, so they had to devise a better way. So they're going to take it on a ship and uh, it's going to take uh, a few weeks or a few days. Well, probably a few weeks probably to get there. Uh, the telescope will then be loaded into a European rocket and be launched into space. Uh, about 6,000 miles away from Earth. And then we'll continue on for about eh, 930,000 miles, give or take. I think it's 1.5 million kilometers. And it's going to take just shy of a month. So 29 days to get to where it needs to be in its halo orbit area. Uh, so it's going away from the Earth and away from the sun. And in this point, it's uh, going to pretty much stay in line with the Earth. So kind of hidden from the sun uh, and in the same orbit as the Earth. So it's not going to fall behind because it's further away. 
Uh, it's not going to go faster because it's further away. It's going to stay pretty much in line with Earth, and it does have boosters because over time it will um, go off of that track a little bit. So they'll kick it back in, and it, I think it's only going to last uh, 10 years before. And the reason for that is because of the um, the fact that they have to cool it, super cool it. And they're shielding from the sun, and they have to super cool this thing. And if it gets too warm, then uh, it uh, pretty much dies. It dies. So it's very sensitive equipment. Uh, but I can't wait to see the work that comes from this. But again, there's a lot that can go wrong before it even leaves Earth. And even more uh, that'll happen, uh, could potentially happen in that 930,000-mile trip to where its, uh, its home is going to be out in space. So this thing isn't going to be over uh, out in you know, Earth orbit. This is going to be way out there. So a, a pretty far distance compared to the Hubble Space Telescope. Uh, so this is going to be a, a unique opportunity, let alone this is better technology. So we're going to see things that we've never seen. And uh, the goals are to hopefully see light from stars and galaxies that formed the universe just after the Big Bang. You know, we'd be, be able to see light that that is that old. Uh, it's also going to be used to study the formation and evolution of galaxies, stars, and planetary systems. And then hopefully also aid in the study of the origins of life. Uh, so I'm excited about this. I can't wait for the launch. And as soon as I get the launch date, I'll let you know. Probably not a whole lot of interest in this. I mean, it's uh, only been, uh, I've only read about it in science magazines and things so far. But I can tell you that once this thing launches and if everything goes correctly and it starts taking pictures, the world will be captivated. I'm telling you that right now. The world will be captivated. People are going to be uh, really blown away by what this thing is going to do. And even if it only lasts 10 years, uh, the research from uh, photographs and from other data collected from this uh, space telescope are, are going to last even longer than that to disseminate. So very excited about this. Uh, it's a giant science project, uh, the most expensive thing that's ever been launched out away from space, even more ex expensive than the Tesla that's uh, flying through uh, flying through the galaxy right now, but I'm excited. You can't tell. I skipped all my stories just to get to that one and talk about that first. So uh, I was sent about an hour before the show, sent a couple of stories uh, from my boss, my producer. And, uh, I, you know, I, I don't talk too much about um, – Meteor showers enough. I, I seem like I just don't as much as I do. I used to, uh, especially with uh, when I talk about UFO stories. I, I think I'm actually going to mention that in the UFO story. Um, but yeah, I think I do. Yeah, the Perseids, Perseid meteor showers uh, are pretty much, I think that's tonight, or you know, early morning, the 11th and the 12th, it's going to peak. So the Perseids are a pretty big uh, show. There's so, still some more meteor showers coming up. Uh, one next month that's pretty big too. Uh, so you may be able to see some shooting stars. 
which is pretty cool. I love watching that stuff. And it's funny because uh, people will stare and they'll try to see one and they think they see one. They're not sure. I think I saw a shooting star. But I'll tell you, when you do see one, you definitely know you saw one. It's There's no thinking. You definitely do see it. Uh, I'll try to get uh, kind of a – we'll talk about like a, a, a the by month because it seems like there's one a month for the most part when you're talking about uh, meteor showers. Perseids are probably one of the more popular ones, but uh, not always the most active. Uh, I think there's only – I think it's only about maybe 10 a minute or 10 an hour, something like that. It probably peaks out around 30, I think, on average. Uh, still pretty good. You're not going to see the giant ones all the time, uh, the giant green flashes and sonic booms and your windows blowing out, anything like that. Just small, quick glimpses of of uh, green or blue, uh, very small things because they're just uh, really and truly, they're about the size of a piece of dust, the ones that you see flash through the sky. And contrary to popular belief, you can't actually hear them. I I'm one of those people. I didn't know that when I was growing up. I, I swear, every time I saw a shooting star, I could hear it. And there's actually uh, science about that, about people uh, thinking since they see something that they associate a sound with it, even though you can't hear it because it's so far away. Now, the bigger ones, ones that are as big as a, a boulder or a small car, yeah, those will blow your windows out. Uh, you'll hear those uh, sonic booms. Uh, from very far away. I've heard a couple of sonic booms related to meteors over the years. I heard one when I was a kid that scared me so bad, I jumped about 15 feet off the couch and hit my head on the ceiling. Well, it seemed like it anyway. Uh, But I thought all the windows were going to bust out. It was pretty scary, and nobody knew what happened. It took a couple of days for it to hit the newspaper. That was before this Internet stuff, this whole Google thing. Um, but it's pretty scary stuff, but the average one you're not going to see. And yes, it will lead to a lot of UFO reports, and we'll talk about that in UFO news coming up very soon. Uh, Another story you sent me, uh, something I've talked about here on the show before, and it's caused a lot of concern, and so I guess it's uh, very very good story, and it's it's worth talking about because uh, people – uh, tend to believe. I kind of believe what they what they hear, what they read. Uh, a lot of people, I should say, a lot of people, a lot of organizations, obviously, are publishing things because it gets attention, and because you're going to click on it. And if if people click on stories, that makes them money because there's advertisements. It's kind of like uh, a TV show that builds up drama for 50 minutes and then leaves you hanging with really nothing. They kept you there the whole time and they made their money off you. Now you're going to go out and buy a Buick because you watched all these commercials about Buicks for, for the past hour or so. So Yellowstone, Yellowstone national park, uh, last month in uh, July, just July alone, there was 1,100 earthquakes in the Yellowstone area. That's a lot of earthquakes. That's probably more than uh, 
I don't know about more than all of Alaska, but still a lot of earthquakes. So a lot of people are thinking, well, this is it. She's going to pop. She's going to blow up. She's going to take out the Midwest. Uh, It's going to bury our crops in uh, five, six inches of dust. And it's going to create a food shortage. It's going to darken the skies. It's going to make us choke on dust. It's going to block out the sun. The earth is going to cool. We're all going to freeze. Well, maybe I'm going a little too far here, but, uh, you know, the big fear obviously is the super volcano erupting. Is this a sign? So when you're talking about uh, earthquakes and normal volcanoes, uh, increase in uh, earthquakes is a a sign of heightening activity. Not necessarily that uh, something's going to blow, uh, but it's uh, the correlation is there. You can go back to uh, Mount St. Helens in 1980 uh, when that thing blew up. Uh, there was a lot of speculation, a lot of earthquake, uh, increased activity. I mean, there's a lot of other things that went with it. So uh, you could start to see the mountain bulge that actually moved and started building pressure uh, underneath. And uh, all that pressure came to uh, a head. I believe it was in, was it May? May of 1980, I think it it blew up. And I remember uh, as a kid, let's see, I was was still a kid, riding my bike. Uh, I remember getting dust on the cars. I remember seeing uh, really cool orangey sunsets. Uh, My grandmother, uh, who lived uh, one state over in Indiana, sent us a big bag full of ash. Uh, from the uh, Mount St. Helens explosion. That's pretty far away. Granted, it you know obviously hit the jet stream and it carried a lot of that here. Uh, that wasn't a huge, I mean, can't say that to the people in Washington, but it it wasn't as big as what could happen if Yellowstone were to explode. And that would be pretty catastrophic, uh, like I said, for uh, the Midwest, for all that dust to, to go up in the atmosphere. Uh, I mean, in years to come, it would be good for the crops. Uh, it would be good for the to fertilize the soil, but uh, not right away. Not right away. Uh, it would cause a lot of problems. So do we have to worry about it? Uh, well, according to LiveScience.com, uh, they put out a story about six days ago, and the headline is, More than 1,000 earthquakes swarmed Yellowstone Park last month. Is this the big one? Or it actually says, is the big one nearing? And, you know, some stories, like, I guess you go on your phone, you can, like, cheat. And you can, I never do that. I always read the whole thing. But you can click on it, and it takes you through, like, slide by slide. You can kind of cheat your way through a story. So you don't have to read the whole thing. Uh, I'm not that kind of person. I like to read the whole thing. Uh, Anyway, uh, they have a little thing at the bottom, right b- below uh, the gentleman who wrote it, Brandon Sp- uh, Specter, senior writer. Uh, they write, the answer is probably not. 
And that's a big letdown because I, I think a lot of people are are kind of hyped up about this, thinking that, yeah, this thing is going to blow up. Uh, every seems like every so often you hear about this. Oh, now I'm reading it's 1,008. I don't remember where I read 1,100. Oh, well, that was back. Okay, so that's that's good information. So, yeah, there was uh, 1,008 earthquakes this year in July of 2021. Now, there was 1,100. I think that's the last time I reported on this story. I'm going to look that up. It's good information. Uh, so, in June of 2017, there was a swarm of 1,100 earthquakes. Well, that was a few years ago. What happened? Why didn't it blow up then? Well, it's because it's pretty normal. Uh, there are uh, quite a few earthquakes in the area. Uh, they, uh, let's see, it's um, about 700 to 3,000 earthquakes occur each year in the Yellowstone area. That's uh, quoting, that's in the Live Science article. It's also on Wikipedia. I remember reading that before. Um, it's uh, Yellowstone is one of the most actively or seismically active areas in the United States. And uh, the reason for that is, uh, yeah, it's sitting on a, a giant underground volcano, but the fact that there are, uh, you got uh, old, old faithful, you know, the geyser, there's a couple geysers shooting out that hot water. Uh, there's a lot of uh, pools of, of hot water. Uh, there's a lot of stuff at the surface releasing that heat. Uh, there's, uh, I don't know if there's any, I don't think there's magma anywhere there, but there's a lot of gases. Uh, you got to be careful in certain areas. People uh, die out there every now and again. They try to go swimming in some of that water. That's super near boiling hot. Or they uh, succumb to the gases. Uh, not very smart. Don't go swimming in Yellowstone unless it's, uh, it's got a beach. Um, so yeah, 700 to 3,000 earthquakes on average, and most of those are not felt. I think this year the largest one was uh, 3.6. That's not really that bad. I've been in a, I think one that was a 3.5, and I've also been in a 5.2. And I, there was another one that was in a few years ago. Yeah, it wasn't that bad. Uh, I slept through ones that were a three. Uh, so it's not that big of a deal. Most of those are, again, not felt. They're very deep in the earth. It's just part of all that activity that's close to the surface. And it's actually a good thing uh, that we're seeing uh, geysers and all these other this other surface activity because that means that nothing is building up. If all that stuff stops and the earthquakes get heavy, uh, then you might want to panic. You might want to move. Uh, then it could get it could get bad. Yeah, I'll be on my way up to uh, I don't know Toronto. I guess maybe that'd be a good spot. Get away from the lake. They'd probably fill in Lake Erie with dust. Anyway, so maybe I'll have to go further north. Um, yeah, so all these earthquakes, it's a result of, uh, there's an extensive network of faults with that volcano um, surrounding that area. Uh, obviously, with the 
that plate, uh, the tectonic features that surround that area. So it's it's pretty common. Nothing to worry about. So don't worry about the uh, Yellowstone explosion. Even if it does happen, I mean, you know, if you're only a few hundred miles away, you'll never even know because you probably probably won't know if it'll happen. It'll probably take you out. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't worry about it. It's been happening for years and every few Every so often, I think, yeah, the uh, 2017, I think I covered it. I'll have to verify that. But I'm pretty sure I talked about that story here on the Paranormal News Insider. It was causing a lot of fear and panic. Uh, doomsday situations, you know, because, hey, 2012 didn't take us out. And the year 2000 didn't take us out. So, yeah, there's always a doomsday scenario situation. But I, it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal this year. Uh, even though it was pretty close to that 2017, I remember that year. It was uh, it was pretty bad, to be honest. Uh, so, that being said, we're going to jump into UFO news here at the bottom of the hour, and in the middle of the hour, I guess. Is that the bottom of the hour? Yeah, that's what they say on the radio. Uh, UFO news, and kind of an interesting uh, story here. It was uh, normally I, I don't talk about these uh, regional stories, these uh, uh, kind of one-off things that uh, only the local population would really care about. But uh, when I read this, I, I was really taken in by the uh, the evidence, or I should say data, associated with this story. And I felt like uh, when I read it, I felt like this was a good story to launch to talk about um, some of the questions that I've been asked about researching uh, the paranormal and, and different topics within it. And I've uh, probably mentioned a few times over the last few shows, uh, probably the last year or so, uh, about a curious absence of the self-touted largest UFO research and investigation organization in the world. Yeah, they've been kind of absent from the news. Uh, before, during... And uh, since this UAP report, I mean, if I'm a UFO organization and I'm going to have, I want membership. So I want people to pay money to be a part of my organization. And I know that people are paying attention to UAPs and UFOs more now than ever. I'm going to get my name out there. I'm going to get my organization out there. I'm going to be in the, the newspaper or news stories or on TV or somewhere as much as possible to get my name out there. But uh, we didn't see much, really, uh, anything from, yes, the Mutual UFO Network, better known as MUFON. And we haven't heard much of them uh, from them since last July. And, of course, uh, that wasn't a very good month. It wasn't a very good story. It wasn't a very good situation. Uh, Jan Harzan, who was uh, director at the time of the organization, was arrested by the Huntington Beach Police Department during an undercover operation involving a police officer who was posing as an underage female. And you could probably put the rest together yourself. Uh, so Harzan has been uh, non-existent, kicked out of the organization Gone. I don't even know what happened. I can't find anything about what happened to him. Uh, if he's in prison, if he's not in jail, 
not in prison, where he's at, what's going on. Not that I really am worried about him or anything like that. Uh, but uh, MUFON since then, of course, uh, appointed a new director and are now moving their headquarters back to Cincinnati, Ohio. And this occurred earlier this year uh, after moving from there to Irvine, California back in 2013. So they're kind of coming home. Um, MUFON used to stand for the Midwest UFO Network. And now the Mutual UFO Network. Uh, MUFON recently appeared in an article published by KARE Channel 11, an NBC-affiliated television station out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. And they were talking about some local sightings. And you, you see a lot of these. Uh, at least I see a lot of these when I'm doing research for stories. Uh, I get Google News alerts for those that wonder. Uh, I do set up alerts for a variety of topics and have to sift through all these stories. Uh, but the good thing is, is I get a hold of stuff before a lot of these other organizations that rely on people like me. I used to uh, send stories into the Anomalist and, and Unexplained Mysteries and all these other sites that are pretty much most of those are gone now other than those two. Um, but I thought, hey, why? I can just report on it myself. Um, but a lot of those organizations, they're behind because they rely on listeners or I should say readers to submit these stories. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I see a lot of these state stories where they say, oh, we had 20 sightings in uh, Idaho last month. Yeah, they all talk like that. They sound just like that in Idaho. They're some more hate mail coming my way. Um, but I see a lot of the regional stories, and I really don't pay too much attention to them. But I took the time to read this one, and uh, I was kind of impressed. And the article mentions, uh, it introduces uh, MUFON, and kind of a, a really, of course, they don't mention you know, what happened last year, but they do talk about the organization, uh, its, its uh, foundations, and they also talk about Tom Mayer, the Minnesota director for MUFON. So each state has its own director. Then under that director, um, I don't think they do section directors anymore. Uh, I guess that depends on the state director. Uh, but you'll also have uh, a number of investigators working underneath said state director who work for uh I don't think they do. They, gosh, do they do regionals anymore? I know they used to have regional directors. Uh, and then they all reported to the director. Director. Um, so anyway, the article states there are 80 volunteers that meet monthly and receive 6 to 20 new UFO reports monthly. Uh, last year, they completed 103 UFO investigations in the state of Minnesota. Uh, of these... Three, just three, were identified as hoaxes. 53 were explainable objects like planets or aircraft. And the rest either lacked enough data or were just unexplainable. So, of course, that, that doesn't mean that those were UFOs. I guess it kind of, in a way, does because they're unexplained, uh, unidentified uh, flying objects. 
Uh, but it doesn't mean that they're alien-controlled craft flying through the skies. It just means that uh, no explanation was assigned or just wasn't enough information. You couldn't tell from a picture or just somebody's story. Uh, so you can uh, think of what you want with those. Uh, of course, explainable also basically means that they couldn't be explained by those who investigated the claims. And uh, that doesn't mean that one doesn't exist without further research. So if somebody else looked at this, maybe they could come to, uh, they could find an explanation for it. It's just at the time that person that looked at it uh, couldn't figure it out, couldn't assign an actual explanation to it. So it just goes into that bin of unexplained. So again, it doesn't mean that it's a uh, a viable option for uh, aliens flying around Earth. Then again, it, it could be. Um, so after that, I thought, well, that's a decent, that's about how all these stories are. Uh, but then I was uh, kind of impressed to see a few cases displayed on here, uh, which uh, if you get the uh, MUFON emails, that uh, come at different frequencies. Uh, sometimes they'll talk about cases on there. Sometimes their cases are are let out in in uh, in the like a local uh, online papers, but um, usually they're just kind of boring to to read. But these uh, kind of cherry pick uh, some really interesting cases, and uh, I was really impressed to see ones that actually had explanations instead of just going with ones that defy or don't have an explanation. Uh, I was pretty impressed with that. Uh, one showed a dog chasing what was thought to be a UFO. It was actually close to the ground. And so the uh, photographer, I don't know the exact story, but the photographer must have sent us in and said, hey, I got a UFO uh, here. But uh, actually... Uh, was explainable, and I do have a uh, somewhere here. It is. I do have a picture that I'll show in share in the chat room. So, if you're live in the chat room, you get to see some of the stuff that I'm talking about. So here's the picture, uh, courtesy of Mufon. You see the little dog there in the field, and you see this green light on the ground. That's got to be a UFO. I mean, what else could that be? It's not a. It's not a frisbee. It's not a dog toy. It's either an orb. Or a UFO, right? That's the only two explanations. Well, not exactly. Uh, actually, there's a thing called a, uh, a flare. So the sun there is uh, creating basically reflection. Uh, I would assume it's coming off the, the lens covering the camera. I'm probably going to guess it's a phone. Uh, my phone does this all the time. It's really annoying. So it's a lens flare. Uh, that happens when you're taking a, a picture with uh, bright light. doesn't have to necessarily be in the frame. Like this one here is a great example because it's right there, center, high in the frame, and the, the light source is directly, well, not exactly directly, but pretty close to being directly below it. And this is basically an inversion of the reflection of the sun uh, reflected in the, the lens. So it's it's explainable. And, you know, some people may not know what that is when they take a picture and see it. Like, uh, But again, I've seen those hundreds of times. Sometimes I get annoyed by getting those uh, on, my, on my camera. But 
technology. What are you going to do? It gets better, and the better it gets, uh, the more problems we have. And the more fake things that can show up on there, false positives. Uh, another photograph turned in as evidence. It's really data. Uh, showed a pulsating light over the witness's neighbor's house. Uh, the investigator of that case determined it was more than likely a star, which happens a lot. It's say probably things that are photographed or people that see things. Uh, planets and stars are usually one of the top causes because uh, people aren't used to seeing this stuff, uh, especially planets that seem like they move. Uh, obviously, they move slower than a plane and don't uh, have green and red strobes on them. Um, and they move faster than stars, but slower than an airplane. So it's kind of weird. Uh, so uh, MUFON Minnesota also states that autokinesis, which is uh, autokinesis, if you've never heard the top, the uh, the topic or the uh, term, uh, is where stationary objects seem to move, and it's basically caused by um, your eyes. So if you're looking at the stars, your eyes will actually you have nothing to really. Uh, judge the distance with when you're looking at it. So if you're looking, if you're, let's say you're sitting in your car and you see another car go down the road, well, you have the background, you have uh, trees, you have other things, other objects that your eyes can help determine where this other object is. Uh, even if the car is just parked. Uh, but when you're staring at stars, you have nothing stationary, you have nothing else there to help focus your eyes to kind of, you know, weigh them down or give it perspective of what else is surrounding it. So you're staring into almost into an infinity, although you're seeing a light. So your eyes don't know how to adjust to it. And so there's an unconscious thing that happens. Uh, your eyes will actually vibrate. You won't feel it. You won't, you won't necessarily realize it. Sometimes you can. I, I've learned how to identify it with myself, although I've been fooled by myself. I'm not above that, but uh, I know it's happening. And all you have to do is basically like blink, uh, look at something close by and then a little farther away and then look back up. And usually it'll kind of go away for, for a couple seconds or a minute or so. Um, but it, it happens. It's, it's human nature. It's just something that our body does that fools us. And so a lot of people fall prey to that when they're looking at the sky. They see things they think are moving. Which are just stars in the sky that do move, but uh, actually they don't move. It's us that's moving. Uh, but the lights move, but they seem to move a lot faster than what they really are moving. And again, it's just kind of a uh, it's just kind of a trick of the senses. Uh, a lot of times that does have something to do with the sightings. So stars, planets, and the autokinetic effect. Um, yeah. So there's being no point of reference for your eyes. They, they kind of flutter a little bit back and forth, and it makes it look like uh, things are darting back and forth, sometimes stopping, shooting one direction, and they're coming back. Uh, it's pretty normal. And, you know, I've had a lot of investigations where that popped up, and when you try to explain it, uh, people don't want to hear it. Uh, so another case they show on this article is a, a string of lights in the sky. And we've talked about this, so gosh, I don't know, a dozen times or more. 
Uh, this one turned out to be SpaceX's Starlink satellites, which has uh, been happening more and more and more. And it's only going to get worse. I have read uh, an article that talked about uh, they're going to start doing space billboards. Oh, boy. Uh, one unexplained sighting they talk about here comes from a photograph taken at 3 a.m. of what was described as a hovering disk of lights. Uh, the witness saw the lights for a few minutes before the object disappeared. Uh, I think I got that one, too. We'll throw that one in the chat room. There it is. Well, I forgot. That. I got the blurry one, too. I could post that one. So this is the last one I just mentioned. Uh, you'll see it's just uh, like a disk of light in the sky. And that could be anything. I've seen those before. You have the... Uh, Car dealerships, they have the lights that they shine up in the clouds. Could be that. I mean, there seems to be a lot of other light reflecting from the clouds, which would indicate a cluster of buildings. So I don't know if they did the research on that or not. Um, but it happens. And you gotta, you got to really look. You got to look hard sometimes in, in doing research for things like that to uh, find the answer. Um, oh, here we go. So uh, another photograph shows a set of blurry lights in the sky. Well, oh, this is that picture. Okay, so they see a set of blurry lights in the sky. And it's just a photograph. So I don't know what – we don't have – uh, any information as to what they actually saw. They just took a picture of something and it's all blurry. So uh, MUFON Minnesota states that the lights do not appear to match the path of SpaceX satellites. Um, but personally, I think it's because they're blurry and distorted. And let me throw that into chat real quick. And there it is. Blurry lights. And I think it's just uh, the camera shake. Uh, it's really hard to take anything in the dark uh, without blur, any kind of blur, because the, uh, the lens is open a long time. And I think any kind of vibration or movement, and believe it or not, you can't hold the camera still, no matter how hard you try at night. Uh, if it's open for you know any quicker than an instant, uh, you're going to get camera shake. You're going to get camera blur. It's just normal. So we don't know what that is. That could be... I could it could just be one point of light. It could be multiple points of light. More than likely, it looks like multiple points of light. I would say that is SpaceX satellites. But uh, would be good to have the uh, the witness statement along with that to uh, because a photograph is only half the data. Uh, when somebody gives you a photograph as a researcher or as an investigator and says, "Hey, I saw this strange thing in the sky." I took a picture of it. Here it is. Uh, the photograph is part of the set of data that you're given. The other is if they did witness it. Now, in a lot of these unfortunate cases, uh, we've talked about a lot of them over the years on the show. People are giving you uh, a photograph in which they actually never saw anything happen. They just saw it on a photograph later on. So you're left with just the photograph. Uh, and not an actual uh, witness statement. However, you can also piece together what was happening 
at the time the photograph was taken, where the photograph was taken. So if it's taken from within a vehicle or in a house through a window, that should raise a red flag right there about reflections. Um, and, you know, again, if the, the witness of this last photograph uh, I'm talking about here with the blurry UFOs, if uh, it's just a bunch of white streaks, if they claim that they saw a line of UFOs, then it's probably SpaceX. If they didn't see anything and they took a picture, it could be anything at this point. Maybe they were trying to do like the light sculpture stuff. I don't know. It's pretty bad. Uh, but it's uh, pretty interesting stuff and uh, really happy to see that they balance things out. Yeah, they do just talk about mysterious stuff, but they also talk about explainable things. And it's kind of good to see MUFON kind of raise their head above water a little bit here. Uh, so one more story that I've got tonight. Kind of went a little longer than I thought. I was going to try to talk about investigation and uh, research. I guess I kind of threw some stuff out there about this UFO stuff. But uh, this story cannot be ignored. In ghost news, uh, you might have read about this, might have heard about this. Uh, something I've been rolling my eyes at for a long time. Pretty much knowing that this story was uh, full of you know what. And uh, poor, this poor guy, Zach Bagans. Uh, the man, the hair, and the uh, two small t-shirt wearing guy. Uh, the main man of the Ghost Adventures television show. Well, he hasn't had a whole lot of good news the last few times I've talked about him. Uh, getting in trouble for plagiarizing. That silly book that he, he published. Uh, um, not a whole lot of good luck. And it looks like that streak continues. Uh, one of the hottest topics in the ghost field. You know, there's always a gimmick. Uh, where it's usually technology. It's usually uh, a new a piece of hardware that everybody's going to have, you know, running around. It's, it's, it's an app with their phone or it's, uh, it's a Xbox or a video game thing that they can use to capture evidence of ghosts. Um, who knows? Uh, but uh, one of the hottest topics lately, the last few years, uh, involves a wine cabinet. Yeah, a wine cabinet. And not because he drinks. Well, maybe he does. I don't know. I'm not there. I'm not out in Vegas. What happens in Vegas, I guess, stays in Vegas, as they say. Uh, but the uh, wine cabinet, you might have heard of this. You might have seen this. Uh, we did talk about this last year. The Dybbuk box. D-Y-B-B-U-K, Dybbuk box. I think that's how they say it on TV. I don't really watch that stuff. Uh, it was purportedly bought by uh, Kevin Manis in 2001 from the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor and was told that it had supernatural powers. And it had this Dybbuk, this uh, kind of like demonic character attached to it. Uh, so Kevin Manis gave his mother, Ida, the Dybbuk box on Halloween. And in a 2012 interview, you can look this up. You can see it. Uh, it's a couple of minutes long. 
it was uh, on the TV series Paranormal Witness. His mom came on, and she claims that uh, she uh, felt a cold breeze coming from the box when she opened it and just had a, a bad feeling. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, she actually had a stroke right when opening it. And the, the, you can watch the, the, uh, the interview, and the sun comes running up, and she's, like, staring at the box. It's, it's pretty dramatic. And uh, he had a lot of bad luck for himself. A lot of other people, his girlfriend had bad luck with the box. Uh, finally got rid of it. He sold it to Jason Haxton. You got to get rid of that stuff. So he sold the uh, little wine cabinet to uh, Haxton. Uh, he ended up also having bad luck. All sorts of bad luck. Uh, such bad luck that he wrote a book about it. And uh, also was a consultant on a movie about the box called uh, The Possession. It was uh, produced by filmmaker Sam Raimi. So, yeah, that's really bad luck to get a, a book, successful book, and then a movie made. That's really bad. That's horrible luck. I wouldn't want that kind of luck. Holy cow. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, Haxton eventually sold the Dybbuk box to Zach Bagans for an undisclosed amount of money. I'm guessing 50 bucks. I'll tell you why. Uh, Manus and Haxton both appeared on episodes of Ghost Adventures, and the box ultimately was proclaimed as the world's most haunted object. No doll, uh, no prison, no castle. Forget Waverly Hills pile of bricks no the Dybbuk box most haunted object in the world yeah I said 50 bucks I mean they got on TV if they made a lot of money they probably wouldn't be on TV that's just my guess I'm just speculating um, so even musician Post Malone was on hand uh, there was the uh, the live opening remember I talked about that last year you know they spent two weeks locked up in that museum in Las Vegas and, you know, COVID. Remember that last year? Remember that at all? COVID? Being locked up in your house or in your haunted uh, place. You know, of course, he came up with the idea uh, to have that live reveal on TV uh, to get some viewership, sell some cars. And he opened it on live TV, claimed to hear voices coming from it. And musician Post Malone was on hand during that event. And purportedly, he had a lot of bad luck after touching the box prior to it being opened. Uh, I think his plane was forced to land. I got robbed or something else. I mean, just oh, horrible bad luck. And you could definitely blame it on the box because he didn't have bad luck before that ever. So, yeah, the box is always to blame. Uh, over the years, there have been reports that the Divic box was uh, was a hoax, including stories that appeared in the Los Angeles Times in 2004. And a Pennsylvania researcher, skeptic, good guy, Kenny Biddle, also shared a screenshot of a Facebook post 
that was uh, made in 2015, uh, created by Manus. Uh, he put that in the uh, Skeptical Inquirer article, uh, where it claimed that uh, he had created the story about the Dybbuk box being um, Manus. Uh, he created the story, and anyone else who claims to have one is lying, and that if anyone could prove the story existed before 2003, he would pay them $100,000 and also tattoo their name on his forehead. That's pretty serious accusations. Uh, ultimately, uh, despite a number of slip-ups over the years, it took until this article in InputMag.com by Charles Moss, uh, interview that he did with uh, Man. It seemed like he was uh, really wanted to fess up in this, the, the way it's, uh, the way it reads. Uh, he kind of hem and hawed over the story about purchasing it, and then uh, the uh, interview was over, and he, he messaged uh, Moss about, uh, uh, you know, if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to call me out on any, anything. And of course, so he took that as like something's up, and continued the uh, the interview, and basically got him to fess up that uh, the box is uh, made up. So it is true. Uh, he's quoted as saying, "He says, quote, I'm a creative writer. The Dybbuk box is a story I created, and the Dybbuk box story has done exactly what I intended it to do when I posted it." 20 years ago, which is to become an interactive horror story in real time, unquote. Now, there is some speculation that perhaps he is jealous of the success of Haxton. Uh, he claims the box is real. He claims it's, uh, you know, really haunted. And he thinks that maybe, maybe it was... Uh, you know, Manus uh, put some sort of hex on it to make it really scary. Maybe, you know, Haxton just has to, he's got to pull it off. You can't, uh, you don't want to get sued by a movie company and a book company for having a fake story. I mean, it's not like he died and went to heaven and told a story and made a movie and wrote a book. Um, so I don't know. Maybe it, uh, maybe it is. Maybe it's not. Uh, I think Haxton claims there are 10 of these uh, boxes hidden all over the world. Kind of silly. So are haunted objects a real thing? Perhaps, but when a normal object is created into a fictional object, given a backstory and creates people to believe in these things, uh, anything is possible. You can take any kind of... Uh, any kind of piece of lumber, a, a cutout, a uh, anything, any object, and if you make enough people believe it's haunted, of course it's going to be haunted. Uh, because belief is a very powerful thing, and belief powers pretty much everything that we talk about here on the show. And uh, apologize, it didn't get to. I wanted to. Eh, this is what happens. I get so excited about this. This. Uh, these stories. Uh, I didn't get to the listener email. Basically, it was about how to become a better investigator and how to research various paranormal claims. Maybe I'll write a, a blog about it, uh, but I would like to talk about it because it's some really good information. Again, I think if uh, a couple of people email me about it, 
then uh, probably a few other people kind of have an interest about it. Of course, I've written six books. Um, there and again, don't read the first three. The last three are on these topics. Highly recommend those. Not that I'm just here to, to try to sell books, but uh, kind of where I would uh, start with those. But anyway, we'll talk about that another show. I'll definitely be here next week. Looking forward to that. But until then, yes, keep your eyes in the skies, your ears in the woods, the hair standing on the back of your neck, and always keep your mind slightly ajar. And above all else, don't stop believing. For the Paranormal News Insider, this is Dr. Brian D. Parsons reporting. <laughs>